right, so before we get into the study, I'm going to do an introduction. Uh, if you want, you can open up to Isaiah 35 um, in your Bibles, Isaiah 35. If you don't have a Bible, the folks walking down the aisle will give you one. Isaiah 35. We're not going to read it right now. Just keep your place there in Isaiah 35. We're going through the book of Isaiah. We're taking a look at these passages. Um, but before we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, I, I want to walk you through some things. Um, That'll pertain to the message as as a whole. Uh, you had the privilege to meet uh, Dr. Poplin, and she she stood, and you heard the story about how God's called her into the universities to be used of the Lord. I read this article in a book that my daughter gave me, um, and it's a portion of the text. It's a a woman who was involved in academia who had been a lesbian, and then she came to Christ, and um, uh, she said. Um, Feminism has truly captured the soul of the secular U.S. universities, and the church has either been too weak or too ignorant to know, uh, and to, uh, to know and to know better. But how has the church responded to this truth? Too often the church sets itself up as a victim of this paradigm shift in America. But I think this is dishonest. Here's what I think happened, she says. Since all major U.S. universities had Christian roots, too many Christians thought that they could rest in Christian tradition not Christian relevance. Too often the church does not know how to interface with university culture because it comes to the table only ready to moralize and not dialogue. There's a core difference between sharing the gospel with the lost and imposing a specific moral standard on the unconverted. Like it or not, in the court of public opinion, feminists and not Bible-believing Christians have won the war of intellectual integrity, and Christians are in part to blame for this. Uh, She says... And whether you agree or not, this is her observations having been in academia and having come to the Lord. She says, uh, I I knew that there was more to it than that. I wondered about this. What is the core of Christianity? Why do true believers believe? What do they believe? Why is their faith person-centered and not idea-centered? And she said, because I'm an English professor, I had to read the Bible to make sense of the hermeneutic used by the Christian right. Because I was a scholar, I knew that without having studied Hebrew or Greek, or knowing the relationship between the different fields of theology and different applications of doctrine, canon, and textual study, I was not able to study the Bible on my own. And as she started a self-study, she came to the Lord. And, um, and, and what we're seeing is this idea of folks, their eyes are being opened. And I was in, um, I was in uh, San Diego on, uh, on Friday. Um, I, I left here at one o'clock. I was to speak in San Diego. I left here at one o'clock in the afternoon, got to San Diego at seven thirty. <laughs> it was a moving parking lot the whole way. I get to San Diego and there's 300 Hispanic pastors. Now I say Hispanic because if you lose, use the term Latino, it means that you're in Latin America. Hispanic means you speak Spanish. The entire gathering was spoken in Spanish and here I am, I'm going to speak and they, I had to use an interpreter. Alexander was the interpreter, lovely lady. And, uh, and, and, and they're there, and they're all San Diego Hispanic pastors representing about 30,000 people. Most of their congregants are probably illegal immigrants, and most of these pastors are registered Democrat. So they put this gathering together, and they asked me to come and speak. And I began, uh, one of the pastors, Pastor Loera, had said, and I understood enough in Spanish, that he had said, um, um, uh, the, the white church in America 
He said, this constitutional republic, and he had done his homework, he said, this constitutional republic, this nation of freedom that all of our people have found refuge in, was established by white Europeans that came across the Atlantic, establishing a constitutional republic based on biblical principles. And, and, it, and it flourished and has, became, has become a beacon of hope for our people. But these white Christians have forgotten their history. But we Latinos are ready to embrace our future. What they were saying is, we want to understand this freedom and this liberty that the white church has forgotten. I was moved by that. He then said, we can contend with the Muslim world because Muslims on average have more than three children. We Latinos have an average of five children per family. (laughs) And he said, if you're in this room right now and you have less than five children, leave and go back to your hotel room right now. (laughs) And they all laughed as you did. And then it was my turn to speak and I came up and I said, "Uh, Pastor Luera, mi esposa no está aquí, pero yo tengo cinco hijos. I have five children, uh, so you, didn't, you understand. I didn't have to go to my hotel. Anyways, where was I? Um, and, I and I said, you know, I, I'm happy to be with you, and I feel like a pair of white shoes with a brown suit, and they all laughed. And as I began to speak to them, uh, I took them through the history of California, Mexican-American War, 1848. Um, almost a third of Mexico was sold to the United States for $15 million dollars. Uh, and I, I said, obviously, that's a, that was a deal. And, and uh, Latinos, most Mexicans, also believe that it was stolen. And I said, so let's say it was stolen. I'm a third-generation Californian. My father was born here. My grandfather was born here. So that makes me a Latino. They all laughed. <laughs> and I said, but I wanted to tell you that you have come here seeking refuge. And, and South America and Central America has more natural resources than all North America combined. And the reason why we flourish is because the people who founded this nation, as you know, and as Pastor Loera has shared, came here seeking religious liberty. And, and, and I said, to understand this constitution and understand these things, and I walked them through this, and, and they were moved. I look over at Alexandra, the interpreter, she's crying. Everyone is moved. And, and I, was, I was stunned because between it leaving my mouth, going into her head, coming out in Spanish, it somehow, you know, the Lord protected all of it and made it special. At the conclusion, um, Pastor Nets Gomez comes up. He's a pastor of a one of the largest churches, Hispanic churches in uh, northern, in, in L.A., uh, largest Hispanic radio program. He gets up, and he says to all of them, he says, Rob, I'm going to speak in Spanish, and I'm not going to interpret. I said, go for it, and I kind of stood there looking stupid. And, uh, and he said, you know, what Rob has done to inspire me and what he's done to inspire all of us, he said, I am committed to making sure that my people are educated in these principles of freedom and, and religious liberty. I want to understand this history that has given us a place of refuge. And we don't want to bring the tyranny we left to the country that has saved us. He said, and we're committed as, as pastors to, to, to move our people in that direction. And he said, all of you who are present, he said, I want to ask you, if I host an event at my church where Rob will come in and teach all of us these principles, how many of you will participate? And everyone raised their hand. And they all started cheering. And I said, what did you say? And he told me. And... <laughs> And, and I was stunned by this. I share all that with you because it's been an interesting week. Uh, I got back at 3 o'clock in the morning, having left there at midnight because many of the pastors want to talk. I got in at 3 o'clock in the morning on Saturday. And, um, and also this week, um, as, as I told you last week, I was interviewed by the Washington Post in relation to immigration, and the article came out. Um, 
And then as a result of that article, I got this uh, email. It said, Dear, Dear Pastor Rob McCoy, I'm a producer with CBS National News. CBS This Morning with anchors Gail King, John Dickerson, and Nora O'Donnell. I'm reaching out to see if you'd be available to participate in a panel interview with other various religious leaders to discuss immigration as well as the topics of parents and children being separated at the United States border. We plan to conduct the panel interview on June 21st. Please let me know if you are available. We can provide travel and lodging accommodations. Thank you so much for your assistance. I wrote back and said, yeah, sure, I'm happy to help. And they said, please stand by. There's breaking news. And Donald Trump ruined my opportunity. He did the executive order and resolved it. And so, and then they responded and said, can we use you at a further date? I said, I'd be happy to help. And then an article came out in the New York Times that I was unaware of. I was never, never interviewed for it. But they took a quote of me on a video saying that um, the currency is poli- in politics is winning elections and we have to engage in the public square. Um, and, and I got this visceral email and a number of others um, telling me, you know, well, I'll read it to you. Dear Rob, I read the New York Times article on the so-called Christian nationalist movement that aims to turn California red. I, I know nothing about what this person's speaking of. I, I didn't write this article, whatever they said in New York Times. I ended up reading it. I'm like, huh, all you have is that quote of me. I don't know where you... It says, I'm a proud resident of Southern California and very politically engaged. After reading this article and learning about a movement that I didn't even know existed in my state, I felt very strong urge to write to you and tell you uh, to let you know exactly what it is you're up against. I will keep this short, but I wanted to start by uh, I wanted to start by saying I have absolutely no confidence that anything I say will pre- penetrate your brain. <laughs> I can state facts, numbers, even uh, actual outcomes, but people like you, at the end of the day, will dismiss it all as fake news, which is fine by me. The more you wallow in your own ignorance, the longer. Uh, Will we continue to crush you in the state of California the longer we will stay on top? California has been solidly blue democratic state for a long time now. That has been the case in the presidential election since Bill Clinton, um, but especially since Trump became president. It's remarkable leftward shift of the state. Uh, it has become considerably more blue and more democratic. Part of the reason for that pre-Trump is California's booming economy under Jerry Brown. <laughs> Stop, stop. I'm running out of time. Because of this, uh, California has attracted a lot of very educated, socially liberal, wealthy, upper middle class transplants to the state. Guess who they're voting for? I am one of those people. I moved here five years ago for professional reasons, <clears throat> but also because I love this state, its values, and its politics. And I know, uh, I know a lot of similarly highly educated transplants who moved here for the same reason. People like me number in the hundreds of thousands, and we, along with millions of Californians who already vote Dem, are here to ensure that not only will California never become red again, but that it becomes even more strongly representative of liberal democratic values. Nowhere in my statements I say Democrat or Republican ever. I have never do that. It is no accident that California is the center of resistance to the Trump regime. Uh, Trump lost the state by 4 million votes. The anger, hatred, moral revulsion, and disgust at this regime has only intensified since November. Uh, we control the biggest, richest, most powerful state in the United States, a state that uh, has the worth of... So it goes on and then concludes by saying, uh, last thing I wanted to remind you is the following... Republican registration in California has hit an all-time low, something like 24%. You are now in third place, below even independence. Keep thumping that Bible, and that number will drop further. So, I, you know, I thought was, he took time to write, so I wrote back. I said, thanks for taking the time to write. 
I was delayed in responding because I was in San Diego with 318 Hispanic Democrat pastors and their wives representing (laughs) 30,000 congregants. Hang on, hang on, hang on. They are sick and tired of the lack of representation that they have received from the Democratic Party, and they asked me to speak. This is now the sixth event I've been a part of in less than three months. Our events are not Republican or Democrat. We're all just tired of elite government officials violating our constitutional rights. If everything you have written is true, you need not waste your time writing to me. I I ignorantly believe that pendulums always swing back. I am a third-generation Californian, and I have seen a change in both directions over my lifetime. But what do I know? You no doubt are smarter than me, and you have clearly let me know that. So... So you again are right. In my ignorance, I will continue on this fruitless cause. Respectfully, Rob. (laughs) Hang on. (laughs) Their response, I can't read in church. (laughs) I seriously can't. Um, And so after, after that response, I just wrote, thank you for your opinion. If you're ever in Thousand Oaks, I would be happy to buy you lunch and converse. Kindly, Rob McCoy. And I'll let you know if they... Let me take him to lunch. I'm almost there. We're almost finished with the introduction. Uh, so I share that with you because um, I, didn't, I didn't sign up for all that. And, and you, get, you get emails like that all the time. And, and these are, these, I, I know this person is sincere. And, and that person is not the enemy. And I didn't seek to incite them, although I, I was pointing out that why would you worry about me? I'm, I sincerely meant that. Why would you worry about me and say that I'm irrelevant and then write to me if I'm irrelevant? And, and, and then their response was even more visceral, and I, I didn't want to do that. So I just said, you know, thank you for your opinion. I let, let it alone. And I found my heart heavy for him and praying for him. And, and really, I do want to have lunch with him. And I've been invited on Monday to go to Sacramento to meet with Evan Lowe, who is the assembly member who's uh, the author of AB 2943, the, the same sex you can't um, counsel someone out of same-sex attraction. And I was invited to come. I have no agenda when I go meet with Evan Lowe. I really have a heart to just want to sit down and I don't think I'm going to change anything, but it's relational, Right. And, and I'd ask you to pray for me. And then I was invited on Tuesday to go to Montana to meet with the man who has helped us with the building who'd just gone through knee replacement surgery. And they said, look, I really need a friend to pray. And I said, I'll be there. So the doors open up, you walk through them, right? The doors open up, you walk through them. Um, we'd inspired a few years back a number of pastors. And we took them on a, an event called the Reagan Thatcher Pope John Paul Tour, where we took the pastors and their wives on a trip uh, to Poland and to England, uh, and then we came back here to California to the Reagan Library. And when we were in Poland uh, with these pastors, we wanted to inspire them by Pope John Paul II, Margaret Thatcher of England, and Ronald Reagan as to what brought down this iron curtain and set these folks free in this oppressive regime. Poland was, their, their neck was under the boot of communist Russia. Poland had been decimated. They had always been the route, the road between every world war. They had been divided, reduced, beaten. They, they're the laughing stock. The refugees that came here, we made Polish jokes. This is a nation that has been trampled on throughout the course of history. When I went there, I didn't know what to expect, and I was, I was moved by, by Poland and, and, the, and, and the Polish people. This is a nation that has experienced incremental growth economically for the last 26 years and now has a 25th largest GDP on the face of the earth. They are a remarkable nation. 
And they love the Lord and there's a heart to pursue God. Now, they're primarily Catholic. And some of you who struggle with Catholicism would, would dismiss that. But I wanted to share with you what we shared with the pastors. And we stood in a city that had been designed by the Soviet Union to be a completely secular city with no vestige of God. And God wasn't permitted in the city. And this city became the epicenter of the transformation of Poland. And it started with a man by the name of Karol Wojcicki, uh, which is who went on to become Pope John Paul II. And we began in Krakow, Poland, uh, where uh, Karol Wojcicki began his march toward Rome to become the the Pope. And um, and there we visited Schindler's factory located in Krakow, and then we visited the infamous Auschwitz and Birkenau. And as we saw these concentration camps that were responsible for the incineration and death of, of millions of Jews. You, 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 you just can't imagine. And uh, there wasn't a dry eye. And it was, it was one of the most profound, here a nation like Germany that was responsible for, for promoting the gospel in the world, the hotbed of the Reformation, within one generation was responsible for the death of over 6 million Jews and over 50 million people. And uh, when Carol Wojcicki stepped out of the Vatican balcony on October 16, 1978, as Pope John Paul II, uh, the person preaching in his home pulpit back in Krakow, in his home pulpit back in Krakow, was none other than evangelist Billy Graham. Besides Mr. Graham, Cardinal Wojcicki had established solid relationships with many prominent evangelical leaders in America. He had reached out to them. In the mid-1970s, American mission organizations like the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association began taking the gospel behind the Iron Curtain to Eastern Europe. And after Graham's first communist crusade in Hungary in 1977, he was invited to the predominantly Catholic country of Poland by the tiny Protestant community there, which amounted to less than 1% of the population. Graham's desire was to work with as many Catholics as possible. If we don't stand together, we fall apart. Initially, the Polish Catholic Church rebuffed him, but Wojcicki, Carol, was the exception, giving Graham the invitation he needed for his crusade in a country where evangelicalism was considered cultic. Cardinal Wojcicki was already overseeing a, a radical partnership between, a Polish, between the Polish Catholic Youth Renewal Movement, per, uh, popularly known as Oasis, and the American evangelical ministry known as Campus Crusade for Christ with Bill Bright. Oasis founder and close uh, friend of Carol Wojcicki uh, was Father Franciszek Blaginiki, uh, he had a conversion experience in a Nazi prison and built the Oasis movement to help Polish youth living under communism discover the same living faith he had found. At the heart of the Oasis movement were its annual youth retreats into the Polish mountains using the outdoor experiences of scouting, bonfires, hiking, singing, as spiritual renewal exercises structured around the mysteries of, of Christ. Wojcicki saw the power of Oasis for renewing the church through spiritual mobilization in its fight against communism. Oasis alumni took vows to live ethical lifestyles of spiritual descent in the face of a hostile communist system. And by December of 1983, more than 300,000 Poles had graduated the Oasis experience, including 40% of all new priests. In January of 1978, Blachitniki came to America to visit Bill Bright at the Campus Crusade headquarters in Harrowhead Springs, uh, and and Bright probed him to find out his, his theology. And at the conclusion of it, he said, he gave me answers that for... Uh, that for one, with my background, were satisfying, and I was content, and they were amazing. You know, America desperately needs a footprint in the public square. And what happened in Poland transformed that country from a wasteland to an oasis. Did you hear that? 
And it was done by contending ideologies. And inspired by these Christian principles, they stood in the face of a godless system that had removed the Lord. And that city became the hotbed of this Reformation movement throughout Poland. I share that with you because when you see folks like Dr. Poplin and others, and the lady who I just read about, and all the things that these Hispanic pastors are doing, we need to be inspired. These Hispanic pastors in San Diego were saying, the white church has forgotten its history, but we will embrace their history as our future. What they're saying is, we see the direct effects of bad government upon our congregants. And there are answers in the scriptures in the public square to have our people flourish, that they would know the truth and the truth would set them free. But if we want to allow this to dissipate, all we need to be is apathetic. And what happens in Isaiah 35 is God in chapter 34 rejects the apathy of the Israelites. You see, they were tired of the decimation. As you recall in our previous study, Jerusalem was surrounded by the Assyrians and Sennacherib had, had declared that he was going to annihilate them. And, and, his, and the Jews had spent all of their money trying to have the Egyptians fight for them. And the Egyptians just melted in the presence of the Assyrians. And now they've surrounded Jerusalem. You saw the picture I showed you. Hundreds of thousands of Assyrians surrounding them. They have no hope. And Hezekiah is overwhelmed. And God says through Isaiah, I, I'm, I'm waiting on you. You have tried all of your, your feeble attempts and, and, and your, your efforts and your hands are weak and your knees are feeble and you've attempted everything in your own power without asking me for help. I'll wait for you. You haven't been waiting on me, but I'll wait for you. And after they're surrounded and there's no hope and they're absolutely overwhelmed and they've tried everything they can do, finally Hezekiah receives from Sennacherib's lieutenant this demand of, of 300 talents of silver and 50 talents of gold. And their, their treasuries are empty. And they say, if you don't give it, we're going to destroy you. And he takes this letter and he walks to the temple and he lays it before the Lord. And he says, Lord, you've got a problem. Because you said to wait on you. There you go. I'm waiting on you. Finally, Hezekiah waits on the Lord. That night, one angel wipes out 185,000 Assyrians. Boom. I've seen dead bodies. I've seen mutilated bodies and burned bodies. But I've never seen 185,000 smoldering bodies in all my life. You can imagine what these, these Israelites, these Jews, were witnessing with their eyes as they're looking out at the landscape of 185,000 corpses smoldering. They're looking at a scorched land and they're seeing what's, what's, what's left of, of the city of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah is done, and the people are rejoicing, but they're also looking and they're saying, what do we do now? And it's here in this picture of the landscape seeming decimated that he, he, he turns to the Lord, and God then speaks to him through Isaiah, and he gives him one of the greatest promises in Isaiah 35 that has been the hope for generations to follow. But in this, we're going to see, we're going to see how God immediately ministered to the Jews we're going to see how God is ministering today through Isaiah 35. It is such a profound and powerful passage. And I pray that it encourages you. Because as we look out at the landscape and we see the struggles and you, you get letters that aren't nice and people are struggling and we see a nation that's, you know, divided. And wherever you are in the political spectrum, none of us enjoy this. None of us. But God wants to, he, he wants to unite our hearts and to minister to us because there's the, he's either going to wait on us or we're going to wait on him. 
And he wants to speak to us that our eyes would be open and our hearts would be moved. And today I pray that you're blessed and encouraged by what he has for you. So with that, please stand for the reading of the word Lord. See, cool introduction, an hour and a half and we're only, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Verse 1, chapter 35, God speaks to the, the people of Israel. He says, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful, fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, and he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land, springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. And they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I don't know about you, but when I heard the menu out there for the ribs and the, my mouth was salivating. But when I read this, my soul salivates. It brings me great hope and joy. And I pray it does for you as well. Let's pray. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word and Holy Spirit, we ask that you lead us into all truth. Please, God, I pray through your word that you administer to every heart, through the hearing of my voice and those over the internet, that you would minister and touch and bless and encourage. And so, God, we avail ourselves that you would speak to us. And we thank you for your living word that's sharper than any two-edged sword, that divides the thoughts and the intents of our heart. Thank you, God. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. A.W. Pink wrote, Nowhere in the epistles is there a single exhortation for the saints as such to engage in public evangelism, nor even to do personal work and seek to be soul winners. Rather, they're required to witness for Christ by their daily conduct in business and in the home. They're to show forth God's praises rather than tell them forth. They are to let their light so shine before men that they glorify their Father in heaven. The testimony of this life is far more effectual than glib utterances of the lips. Actions speak louder than words. I was touched by that because I think the church has come to a place where we think words are all we need to be about instead of action. And here in this picture, it's fascinating to me that God speaks to a people who would abandon the Lord. Oh, they had built a city and they had engaged in a combat and war and they had they'd enlisted the help of the Egyptians and they had done a number of things. But God was waiting on them to come to the end of themselves. Their hands were weak and their knees were feeble. And I'll explain that momentarily because the text says it. 
But now they had come to the end of themselves, realizing their hands were weak, their knees were feeble. And it's at that moment that Hezekiah lays it before the Lord and says, you've got a problem on your hands. And they begin to wait on God. And then God shows himself strong on behalf of those who seek him. And 185,000 Assyrians, boom, one angel, done. Right? That's what God does. And, and the idea is, if we're willing, God is able. I watched, I watched pastor after pastor after pastor stand and say, here am I, use me, Lord. I don't know the first thing about it, but I'm willing to engage. And I would look at them and say, you don't need to know about it. If you're willing, God's able. He'll educate you, prepare you, and equip you. I didn't know about this four years ago. I don't even know why they're quoting me or using any of these articles or calling me. I mean, they're reaching to the bottom of the barrel to try to find somebody to say something. I'm thinking, well, okay, pick me then. Sad. And, 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 as, and as we look at this passage, what's happening is the, the Israelites have now come to place, their, their nation had been surrounded, now they're looking out at a smoldering pile of burning bodies, a scorched earth, a desert, a wasteland. And you take inventory of your life. I'm at 53 years of age, and, and I'm almost 54, and you look back and you start thinking, God, if, if that fire were to judge my life, what would remain? God, the only things done for you will, re- will remain, things that are eternal in the heavens. I- I've worked with my hands through 54 years of living. What do I have to show for it? Are my hands weak? Are my knees feeble? I look back and I see my children walk with God. And as John said, I know no greater joy than to see my children walk with God. I'm, I'm most proud of that. I'm, I'm proud of 28 years of marriage. I'm proud of, of standing firm for the gospel of the Lord. Those are things that are lasting, but I can see many things in the scorched earth of my life that, that uh, by my life and, and by my weak hands and my feeble knees, I, I had laid waste to many portions of my life. I had done a number on my life. Many of you know of what I speak of. Your, your marriage is a wasteland. It's a desert. It's decimated. Your health is decimated by your, your living Many things that we're responsible for, the actions we've taken. I'm not speaking of disease that hits you as a result of nothing of, of your own doing, but I'm talking about, I, I know what I did to my body. I take full credit for that. And even in the course of that, when I look back and the scripture says in Psalm uh, 23, that goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. When I look behind me going, Lord, look at the mess I've made. And goodness and mercy have swept it up. And they go, what are you talking about? I just, well, Okay. And what God does is he takes the messes of my life and and he uses all things together for good and he turns them into an illustration that blesses the lives of others. I hate to revisit them, but he's the one who's put me on this highway of holiness. He's put me on this road and I love it that it says even fools walk it. I mean, even even folks like you, Rob, I I put guardrails on this to keep you safe. I'm like, thank you, because it's like, you know, bowling and you put bumpers in the gutter and boing, 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 strike! (laughs) I'm so good! You know? (laughs) And I'm, I'm grateful for that. I love that, that God is intense and, and he's, he's, he's complex and, and, and my, my feeble, temporal, mortal mind can't comprehend the, the entirety of him. But I also love that he's simple. I love that he makes it simple. He puts the cookies at the bottom shelf. I, 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 get, I get that. You're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you believe in your heart, confess your tongue, Jesus the Lord, you will be saved. Oh, okay. I like cookie. I like that. Right? Isn't that wonderful? 
And he does that. And then as you come to him and you start to realize who he is, and as you apply your hands to his purposes and your knees in prayer, and he strengthens your hands because your knees are yielded. They're not feeble. They're strong and being bent before God. All of a sudden your world changes. Your marriage becomes stronger. The the call on your life takes on dimensions you never would have imagined. That's what's so exciting. But Christians, we've come to a place where our lips are moving. But our hands are feeble because we're not about his business. Our knees aren't bent in asking him what he desires. We think we've built this mound of dirt and somehow he's to be impressed. And I, I ask people, what are, what, if you leave this earth, what are you most proud of? And sometimes people just look at me and they go, I don't know. Sometimes I'm wondering if I've wasted my time. What does it profit a man to gain the world yet lose his soul? And these contending ideologies, because every road, when we speak of this highway of holiness, every road leads to a destination. And every great journey begins with the end in mind. If you're on a road that has nothing to do with God, your destination is oblivion. If you're on a road that has a destination of a heavenly location, heaven itself, your eyes are fixed. You know where you're going. There are guardrails. You will make it. There's no lion. The Bible says that Satan is a roaring lion roaming about seeking to be made a vower, as it says in Peter. They're not allowed on this road. My, my life is secure. I, I am justified, just as if I never sinned. He has, I have been placed in his hand. No man can remove, not even me. And he loves me with an everlasting love and he forgives me and he's patient and he's long suffering. And though I fail him, he turns it into an illustration and he causes the deserts that I've created to bloom. Only God can make a highway like that. The engineering that is required is beyond my comprehension. That's the Lord. That's the Lord. And when you see this picture where it says in verses one and two, the wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with the joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. It was true in the immediate term when Judah was restored after the invasion of the Assyrians. But you know what's amazing? Is in modern day Israel has turned the wilderness and this wasteland into a blossoming rose. For those of you who have joined us on our trip to Israel, it was Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, who visited Israel. And when he went there, he said of Israel, he said, this is a bug infested marsh. I don't know why anyone would ever want to live here. And he was completely right. And if you went to that part, it was a bug infested swamp. And then you go to another section, it was a wasteland and a desert and there was nothing growing. And it was awful. and It was just scorching hot. And today, 70 year anniversary of Israel, you go there today, they export all of their fruits and their vegetables to Europe and they have caused it to bloom in every nook and cranny of Israel. They created drip irrigation. They have limited water. They've got the Sea of Galilee. That's about it. The Jordan River, which is minuscule, and they have used it and established it. They have desalinization plants. They have caused this little patch of ground in the 1040 window, longitude and latitude, where the the majority of the Muslim world exists, where these these countries are imploding and being destroyed. And here this thing is blossoming. And it's beautiful. They've planted trees. The forests are back. It's stunning. God did this. 
what's the difference between, and, and as you're driving through Israel, there's, Jordan, or there's Lebanon, there's Jordan, there's Syria, and you can stand up on the Golan Heights and you're looking out in Jordan, you're looking at Syria, and, and you see the demarcation line, farms, farms, vineyards, beautiful, demarcation line, decimation, bombs blowing up. Hmm, let's go to Lebanon, beautiful vineyards and, and orchards, and then demarcation line and bombs blowing up. And in Syria, the same bombs blowing up. What's the difference? Ideology. One is on a road seeking God and the other is not. And so you say, well, that's simplistic. This idea that God is a lawgiver when it says republic, the public thing, which is the law. This is given by God. It's not, it's not social justice. It's justice. It's not what the people decide they want. It's what God says. And they recognize this. Verses three and four, it says, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who are full, fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God, he will come and save you. When I said weak hands and feeble knees, you know what weak hands are? Weak hands are anything that you're doing that isn't to God's glory. That's where we got the Protestant work ethic. They realized that it was an act of worship, that you're building commerce. You know what a road does? Roads are created through history because you need to get to a water source or you need to get to the materials or you need to get to a hunting ground. And there's something there to sustain your family and it's something common to everyone. And then all of a sudden the family starts to gather and there you have trade taking place. And so you create trade routes and these are roads and commerce is developed and people are blessed and they work with their hands and they develop places where people can flourish. And God gave the Noahic covenant so that governments would protect man. And these roads are established and we know all roads lead to... Oh, nobody does that. All roads lead to Rome. Next time, do your homework. Jeepers, people. All roads lead to Rome. Thank you. Rome established this, this, this amazing kingdom because they understood the concept of roads. They paved them. They set them. They, they established them. They could take commerce and trade and materials, and they could move armies. And here you have roads established. Roads that, that create this commerce. When a government starts to fall apart, what's the first thing that happens? Their infrastructure is destroyed. I got to tell you, I used to love to drive in California. But now I got to wear a kidney belt. Right? Six hours to San Diego. Seriously, I lost teeth. Feeble hands are things that are done apart from God's glory. And when you do it for the glory of the Lord, things are blessed. The Bible says, blessed is, a nation, blessed is the, the nation whose God is the Lord. The Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The idea is with these hands, we build communities that, that cause people to flourish and their families to succeed. That gives men and women freedom and to be able to glorify God and to realize the full nature of what God created them to be. Laws are the wise restraints that make men free. You apply restraints towards evil in order to pursue excellence. And these, these restraints are established by God. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And when you do that, I will bless you. And blessing, you have accumulation of property. And property is ordained by God. And you, this is what he does. He says, thou shalt not steal. So socialism is a violation of thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not covet. But yet God establishes these things and all of a sudden these, these, these feeble hands that think that they can do something apart from God just build nothing but the Tower of Babel. 
And weak knees are knees that are not willing to yield and to bend before God and to pray and to say, God, what would you have me do with these hands? Strengthen them for your glory. This is what the passage says. And God says, I will save you. I will work this for your glory. God's people have weak hands and feeble knees. If we're not making progress in our walk with Jesus. Folks, prayer is not a sidebar. It's everything. Verses 5 and 6, the sick and disease are healed. This idea that it says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. And as I read that passage, it took me to Matthew chapter 11, when John the Baptist was in prison because he had the audacity to confront governmental authorities when he said to Herod, you're not allowed to sleep with your brother's wife. So they put him in prison. And there he is languishing in prison. He's the one that made straight the way of the Lord. He was in the spirit of Elijah and he made way the straight, uh, made straight the way of the Lord. There he is in prison for confronting evil in the government entities. And as he's in prison and his disciples are peeling off and going to be with the Lord. And, and Jesus was related to John. You remember Elizabeth and Mary? Elizabeth was pregnant with John. Mary was pregnant with Jesus. And when they came into proximity of each other, the baby leapt in the womb. You remember that? So here's John, he's older, and he was raised with the Essenes, and he's, 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 Jesus said of him, of men born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. Here he is in prison, and he's saying, God, what is this about? If there was ever a time in the history of man that God himself could have physically walked a few miles to go into the prison to tell John, hey, I'm the Messiah, it's all good, buddy. Here, look, I made this, and I, look, I make an opening here, and I can cause time to stop. He could have shown him the power of his deity. And his disciples came because John had sent them. John's disciples come to Jesus and they say, John is struggling. And John wants to know if you're the Messiah. And he quotes out of Isaiah 35, Jesus does, when he responds to John's disciples. He says, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And the disciples begin to walk to go tell John what Jesus had said. And when they're out of earshot, Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, of men born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. That guy's a stud. John's disciples never made it to the prison because Herod, who was a political leader, his wife had a daughter named Salome. And Herod got drunk and he was partying. And and as was always the case, his wife knew how to reach him when he was drunk because he'd give away things when he was drunk. I learned that from my father. Every time he was drunk, I'd always get some quan, some money. I'm just telling you, I learned it. <laughs> and and, and, as, and as, uh, as, as he's drinking and partying with his friends, and he was really concerned with public opinion, which many politicians are, his wife speaks to her daughter Salome and says, listen, you're young and nubile. Do a seductive dance for your stepdad. And so she comes out and she's doing it. And all the guys are salivating looking at her and they're all cheering her on and then in a drunken stupor he says to Salome anything you want up to half my kingdom and she whispers and she says I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter so as John is laboring in prayer and he's, he's wondering and struggling over the Messiah and he's trusting God all of a sudden he hears footsteps coming down he's thinking they've arrived the Messiah is here to deliver me but instead the guards grab him and pull him up put his head on the stump and bam cut his head off and as he exhaled his last breath on earth and inhaled his first breath in heaven he realized God you have always been in control 
this would be a testimony for generations to come at the reading of Matthew 11. All of you would be inspired that even in his trial, even in his struggle, God didn't let go of John. And he said, it's worth it. It's worth it to stand for righteousness. You've made straight the way of the Lord. It was Jesus whose heart was broken over John. But John set the standard. And evil wanted him removed. And this idea, as it says in verse 6 and 7, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert, parched ground shall become a pool, the thirsty land, springs of water, the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And I love this. Where you have a desert and you've, made, you've laid waste of your life. God knows how to bring a spring and what was once useless becomes a well-watered vineyard and it's fruitful. He took the waste in the deserts of my life and he made it fruitful. I don't know how he did that. But he did. And it's a glorious reality in my life. We take roads for granted, don't we? The passage says, a highway of holiness is made for God's people. This idea of a highway shall be there and a road and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. I'll cover that in a minute. But it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, Rob, shall not go astray. We take roads for granted. In the ancient world, a good road, a highway, was an amazing blessing for travel, progress, and business. And here the Lord makes this amazing highway of holiness. The Hebrew word for highway indicates what English word literally says, a highway. It speaks of a road raised, lifted above ground. It's high and glorious to travel on. There's, there's, there's no congestion. It's moving. But I love what Spurgeon says, and listen to this, please, if you haven't been paying attention, listen to this. Engineering has done much to tunnel mountains and bridge abysses, but the greatest triumph of engineering is that which made a way from sin to holiness, from death to life, from condemnation to perfection. Who could make a road over the mountains of our iniquities but Almighty God? None but the Lord of love would have wished it, None but the God of wisdom could have devised it, and none but the God of power could have carried it out. Now, there's a problem. It says the unclean shall not pass over it. You see, the highway isn't for everyone because it has a toll booth. And it's a toll you can't pay. But you can't make it on this road unless you pay it. And the joy of it is God has already paid it if you'd but receive it. It's like I, when I was at the Omni Hotel and I spoke, I, I got valeted because I, I didn't know where the parking was. And it's like expensive. And they go, but you can validate it. And I got it validated. And if I had left my ticket, though it was validated, I'd still have to pay. And I didn't have the money to pay. I'm thankful it was validated. And, and, and I forgot the thing. I left it up in Tom B- Bengar's room. I said, do you have the ticket, Tom? Oh, yeah, here it is. <laughs> and he comes out, he brings it to me. I had just enough for a tip, five bucks, but I bring that thing. Uh, that's right, it's validated. Get my car. <laughs> you want on this road, it's a toll road, but the price has been paid. All you need is a ticket, and the ticket is this. You believe in your heart. You confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You see, the destination is God's kingdom. And... and 
Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes on this highway but by me. To get on this road, you have to receive Christ as your Savior. And you know what the cool thing is? If all you can process about God is, I have screwed up my life. And, and I'll share this with you. There was a guy, Bill Fleming. I, I, had, I had met him at a Bob's Big Boy when we were building a house, and he was chain-smoking at the, at the coffee counter. And Max Koenig and I were praying about what we were going to do because we were putting sweat equity into a home. We wanted to sell it and fix it up. But we had come to the electrical part, and we didn't know how to do electric and that, that kills you if you don't know how to do it. And, and so we're praying. We're saying, Lord, we're out of money, but would you send an electrician? And, and this guy nudges me. And, and I didn't even want to turn because he smelled like the north end of a southbound donkey. And he was just, he was smoking a camel cigarette. It was down to the nub. And his fingers were yellow. And he had this grizzly Adam's beard. And he just smelled awful. And I'm like turning my back to him, praying, ask for an electrician. He nudges me. I go, jeepers, this is creepy. He goes, hey, I'm an electrician. <laughs> God answered your prayer. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, look at you. You're a, oh, you're an electrician. That's right. Blows it right on me. So we had him come, and, and the house was all, you know, and he was, he said, I don't have a place to sleep. So I'll sleep here. I'm like, okay. And, and, and he was doing the work, and I'm talking, Lord, I don't believe in Jesus. Cut, talk, uh, quit talking about that, ju- that dead stuff. And he used a couple expletives. And, and I was in be- I'd taken a job with uh, Cheeseboro Ponds, leaving Helene Curtis, so that I'd had a two weeks of interim before I took the position in the San Joaquin Valley. And I'm talking to the Lord. I'm helping him. He's teaching me electrical. I'm going through it. And, and he starts telling me some stories, and I'm witnessing to him. And finally, he disappears. He's gone for like three or four days. Max goes, where's Bill? I go, I don't know. He left. And all of a sudden, Bill shows up, and he's worse for wear, and he's just been through the ringer, and he goes, I got work to finish. I go, what's up with you, Bill? And he goes, oh, I was up in Ukaipa. I was in the VW, and I just, you guys can't be for real. I'm just thinking, you're always doing your praying, and your Jesus crap, and I just, he goes, I was done. I was going to kill myself. He was a Vietnam veteran. He'd been on the Da Nang Delta and worked on riverboats. He just said, you know, I, I just, I, I was done. I had that gun to my mouth, and. I just said, you know, these guys are real. I'll give it another shot, and I'm back here. So what's real? I'm like, oh, no pressure. (laughs) I said, look, Bill, let's just get back to work. Let's put our hands to this, but let's pray and ask God to do it first. We prayed. And then we finish the house, and I have to move, and Bill helps me move, and he drives the, the vehicle, and we get to Fresno, and I unpack it, and that night I go to church, my old church in Fresno, and excuse me, Madeira, and we're there, and Pastor Randy Brandon's preaching, and Bill's sitting there with me, and it's, it's a good gospel message. Pastor Brandon always gave an altar call at the end, and he's talking about the Lord, and he's, he's offering this validated ticket to get on the highway to heaven, this highway of holiness, to a man whose life has been inundated with hell. Now, this is a man that has just screwed up his life. He has, if, if there's a drug, he's taken it. If there's alcohol, he's drank it. If there's, it, he's, he's drug sexed his whole life into oblivion. It is a desert. It is a wasteland. And he's sitting there and he's just worthless. And Pastor Brandon's talking about this hope, this forgiveness. I'm like, Lord, bring him to you. Put him on this road, Lord. Help him. Randy gives the altar call, Pastor Randy. I look over at Bill. Our eyes are supposed to be closed. <laughs> Nothing. 
I leave there, and I'm thinking, okay. We get back to the house, and he's quiet. We sit down, and my friend and I are going to close the night in prayer, go to bed, and I got work to do the next day. I go, hey, Bill, we're going to close in prayer. Open, done, bug you. We can go to the other room. No, that's fine. Can I pray with you? Oh, yeah. Sure. He comes over. What do I do? We're just going to talk to God. Uh And I pray. My friend prays. We both say amen. Okay, uh, what about, I want to pray. Okay, Bill, go ahead. Uh, coolest prayer I've ever heard. He said, Lord, no, he didn't say Lord. He said, God, he know all the, and he uses an expletive, S-H, I've ever done, and how I've effed up my life. And, and, and every word is an expletive. I'm like, oh. And he's cussing through this whole prayer. And they're adjectives that are so profound. And I know God's going, yes, you have. Yes, you have. Good word. (laughs) Appropriate. And he said, I just got a mess. And if you want it, you can have it. I don't know what you can do with it. And he gives his life to the Lord. And he's sobbing like a big giant. Just precious. He ended up becoming the director of the Madeira Rescue Mission. Getting married. He's got kids. God redeemed his whole life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Bill's idea was if, if a fool like me can get on this road, anyone can. That's true. We're the ransomed of the Lord. That means he's paid the penalty for our sins. He's validated our ticket. You've got to get your ticket validated. And... I'll just run you through this real quick. I'm, I'm late, but we'll just go fast. This is a, an ancient road from Greece. You can see that all roads lead to Athens or Rome. It builds things. Commerce goes to and fro. That was the cardio, where you get the word cardiovascular. Cardio is the, is the Latin word for main court, car, uh, artery. It's, it's, it's where the city did its business. This is what made Rome great, all the roads that it established, the trade network. This is Detroit. It was flourishing. It was a nation that was the fourth most influential, powerful, richest city on the face of the earth. This is 1940s. You can see how resplendent it is. And then they move away from God, and they try to operate things with their own hands and and this secularist mindset. And now you see... This is Detroit in the 40s. This is Detroit today. Detroit today. Detroit in the 40s. Detroit today. Detroit on the right in the 40s. On the left today. Detroit on the left in the 40s. Or in today in, in the 40s. That was industry. Cars being manufactured. That's that same factory today. This is Hiroshima, nuclear explosion in the 40s. This is Hiroshima today. So you look at Detroit, Detroit looked like the bottom in the 40s, and today it looks like the top. Hiroshima in the 40s looked like that, and today it looks like that. What happened? Government. Either feeble hands that reject God, 
or weak hands that reject God and feeble knees that don't bend to his authority. Hiroshima in the 40s, Detroit in the 40s. Hiroshima in 2010, Detroit in 2010. A highway shall be there and a road and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool shall not go astray. We know about Bill. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing with everlasting joy in their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. God's going to, he's going to fix the wastelands of your life. If he could do it in Hiroshima, he can do it with us. See, this is the idea of the world tells you that you can't do anything and they hold you paralyzed. All you got to do is just turn and follow the Lord and watch what happens to that politician. (laughs) Folks, this is the conclusion of the Bible. Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. And then the scripture says, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to validate your ticket. He wants to get you on that highway with the guardrails and the bumpers. And here's the beauty of this road. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I mean, you know, we we have asphalt, but pure gold's pretty happening. Just take a look at that. It's time to walk where God wants us to go. These weak hands are hands that haven't been about God's business. These feeble knees are knees that haven't bent in prayer and asking him what to do. It's time to give him our hands, give him our heart, and get on this road and bring everyone with us. And these roads build. These roads are instrumental in the salvation of man. Folks, it's time we engage and allow God to use us. We're people who use these hands as worship to glorify God and to build things that are lasting. And when you look back on the entirety of your life, is it a wasteland or have you built something? And if you want to build something lasting, bend your knees. If you want to build something lasting, bend your knees. And watch what God does. That's the hope of the text. God wants to take the wastelands and let them blossom. And we are his people. And we're the keepers of this kingdom. Let him use us.